well, in just a moment, uh, we'll get started. So let's see. A big welcome to our live audience for Digital Health Investor Talk. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health consulting firm for young digital health companies and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors consults with digital health companies to address growth and fundraising issues and strategic alternatives. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Stephen Wardell. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. Our guest today is Ace Bhattacharya. Ace is the founder and CEO of medicalrecords.com, which builds consumer-focused digital properties in the healthcare sector. You can follow him at twitter.com slash Durjoy, D-U-R-J-O-Y. Um, Ace is a serial entrepreneur and interactive advertising executive based in Boston. Before uh, trading the agency world for the startup world, Ace worked for some of the world's greatest brands, including Ford, IBM, Mercedes, Starwood, JetBlue, and Pfizer. Today's topic is reaching the patient, how access to patients is being cut off by big tech and how to break through. First off, here's the format of this investor talk. We'll chat about the news for about 30 minutes, and then we'll talk about today's topic for about 30 minutes, and then we'll be taking questions and call-ins from the audience. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register for an account with call-in and then come back to this page. To register, you can access call-in at callin.com or through the call-in social podcasting app in your app store. The call-in platform works similarly to Clubhouse Rooms and Twitter Spaces, for a modern social audio experience. Once you've registered, you can use the text chat or press the website's call-in button uh, to join the discussion. So welcome, Ace. Great, thanks for having me. This is exciting. Uh, it's great to have you. Um, and can you introduce yourself further to our audience? Sure, so um, you almost got my name right because it's Ace Bhattacharya. It's a pretty long last name. and. ACE was a rebranding in seventh grade. Uh, so you're trying to make it easier for folks. So I'm based uh, in Lexington, Mass, right down, the, right down the street from the first shot of the American Revolution. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, I'm an ex-big agency guy who worked for lots of large companies, later switched into working for VC-backed companies. Uh, you know, and, but in another life, I spent a lot of time in sports, health, and wellness, uh, where you know, I ran digital for the U.S. Open, uh, and which is part of the USTA for the for the tennis side, uh, where I had eight hundred fifty thousand paying members. So anybody who ever played leagues and tournaments or played any USTA tournaments, I would run the digital experience for those folks. Um, I moved back up to Boston from New York uh, to join a company called Exos Athletes Performance. We trained high and elite athletes around the world, so it's most like literally ninety something percent of the NFL first round draft picks. Uh, the, the idea of actually like corporate wellness kind of came from that. And we ended up building a very interesting business that did corporate wellness for Google, Intel, IBM, et cetera, and lots of self-insured companies, uh, to help their employee employers, uh, employees actually take advantage of some of our learnings from training these, uh, you know, the pro athletes, we tried to help the, uh, the employees themselves. 
So I'm currently the founder of medicalrecords.com, which is part of the NCMR family. Uh, we operate a, uh, about 15 digital media properties and uh, all in the health, medical and insurance space. That's great. Thank you. So now we'll move on to the, the macro environment. So um, we've had a situation for about six quarters where VCs have been reluctant to invest. And the way I like to put it is that entrepreneurs are swimming in the pool and VCs are sitting on the bleachers um, and they have money, they have dry powder, uh, but in general, they're acting in a very restrained way. They're, a lot of them are not investing it. Oftentimes it's what I call lead investors aren't leading. Um, and when you talk to these investors and ask them, they will say that there's too much uncertainty, especially around pricing and that's driven by the Fed. Uh, and the Fed has raised rates at an unprecedented rate speed over the last six quarters. Uh, and basically, um, and that, that in turn uh, usually translates into valuations, especially with growth, with growth stocks and growth equity, where higher Fed rates translates directly into lower valuations. So VCs have not wanted to commit to a, a company, invest, bring their friends in, and then have the NASDAQ fall 30% because the Fed raised rates, uh, uh, and then uh, be in a situation where they're already underwater in their investment. And so what we've seen recently is that the Fed uh, raised its last quarter point raise, and then said again, it has probably come to the end of rate raises. And so, uh, I, and so I'm, putting forth a thesis that we're going to start to see investment activity picking up. Now, I'm, there's, a, there's alternate theses out there, which is that it's going to be another year until we see investment activity picking up. But I'm, I'm putting out there that we're, I think it hasn't happened yet, but I think we're going to see investment activity pick up because of that uncertainty, which is the number one factor investors are listing as to, as to why um, they're reluctant to invest has been reduced. So we have a catalyst that reduces uncertainty here and it's happened. So just wondering, uh, Ace, are you, are you interacting with investors and other entrepreneurs? And, and just can you reflect what, what you're seeing and do you have a view about this as well? I do have a view. And I think some of it is coming from a perspective of being not a VC, being an entrepreneur, and I would just say that, look, they have a few, one quarter or two quarters is not a really long time if you have a eight year, 10 year horizon for your fund. And so I think the idea of, it seems very prudent to kind of sit it out, take a bunch of meetings, figure out where things are. For the entrepreneur side, which is most of, you know, I'll just say most of my friends, uh, as they talk to folks, I think, you know, some people are finding, it depends on what stage you're in, right? So a, a series A company looking for series B, you know, trying to look for series B money, very different case. And the valuations are probably not what your series A investors want to hear and your employees don't want to hear. So I think there's some difficult choices that we're going to have to make uh, for those companies to get more money. But on the seed side, I'm seeing a ton of folks, especially if you use the words AI, um, I see a, a ton of folks getting money, people building interesting things. It's never been cheaper to go build something. Um, and you're seeing family offices come up to the plate and realizing there's some good opportunities. I've talked to a few different family offices over the last month. Um, and I, so I don't, I don't know if it's only the Fed that's stopping folks. I think it's a great uncertainty and there is a bit of a course correction that people just don't know what the next step is. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So, and what I'm seeing by the way is, so for series C, D, crossover and IPO in digital health, I'm seeing that down 95%. Um, for A and B, 
I'm seeing that down 75%. So you, still, you occasionally see deals get done, but it's, it's, it's this down. This is down as compared to 2021. Um, and then for seed, uh, that's only down only like 25%. Um, so that 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 you know, th those deals are getting done. It's different people, different capital, different timelines um, for that early stage investment. Uh, so, um, uh, and what I when I say that you know the Fed stopping raising rates is resolving an uncertainty, I'm getting to that. I think we may see more um, uh, you know more um, a, a and B rounds uh, than in the, than over the last uh, six quarters. Um, so. The next one is uh, next. So, um, uh, you know, uh, I, another question is we're we're seeing in the news a lot of talk about the debt limit. So, um, the U.S. government is running up against a congressionally set debt limit, uh, and um, uh, there's a possibility either of a government shutdown or a literal default, which has never happened um, uh, on bonds or uh, heroic measures by the Treasury of printing a trillion-dollar platinum coin. Uh, or other uh, hearing, uh, or Biden uh, acting in a possibly extra constitutionally manner to resolve this, um, or maybe uh, the two sides in Congress are deadline artists and they like to play games around uh, deadlines, and it, it focuses all media attention on them when they allow uh, you know the date to approach the deadline, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, my own view on this is that this I, is that we've seen approaching a debt limit many times um, and the Congress always resolves it. And so uh, I, I, I don't think that this is, you know, I, I think that I'm going to forecast 80% chance this is a nothing burger, um, although we're going to hear about it more and more in the press. Um, if we did see a literal default, that would be bad news for the whole global system. But the U.S. would still ironically maintain a sort of a preeminence. Uh, people are not going to flee to German bonds or Japanese bonds. Um, U.S. credit would, would suffer. We would pay higher interest rates. We wouldn't have a mystique of never having defaulted. Um, but uh, it also wouldn't be the end of the world. But things would get, would get tougher and, and it would affect the innovation economy which is usually cash flow negative and, and requires financing worse than it would affect, you know, the cash cow or the, or the, the you know, the, the standard economy. So any thoughts on the upcoming uh, debt crisis? Or, or, uh, debt I hope debt? you're right is my big, big part. I hope your optimism is, is well-placed. We didn't have, you know, folks, I, I grew up in rural Alabama, so I, I'm not as left-leaning as my Boston surroundings are, but I'm, I'm pretty centrist. And I look at that when I turn on Morning Joe on MSNBC, he grew up in Alabama where he went to school in Alabama. And I go, oh, look, I, I'm pretty simpatico with Joe Scarborough's views. And I look at it and go, this is horrible. It's horrible for the U.S. brand. It's horrible for everyone concerned. And why are they using the threat of we're going to topple the whole economy to try to get some, you know, cuts done? And again, this is not a political conversation, but I would just say, I think it's bad for everybody. And it's really bad that the players are, are trying to do this. Um, making business harder, which is really the only thing I want, you know, defense and making, you know, in, increasing commercial opportunities is really what I want government for. And they seem to be making our lives a little bit harder. Also, a, a banking crisis. So we, we thought we'd seen the end of this. Uh, the, uh, you know, the shutdown of Silicon Valley Bank was an enormous shock for the innovation community. They served the innovation community. Uh, much better than other banks. Uh, you know, the, an entrepreneur could get 
uh, could get a bank account, a loan, a mortgage from them when not having a pristine employment record, whereas most banks wanted that, um, but they understood uh, the, the clients and then it went bankrupt. Uh, uh, and uh, the Fed uh, backstopped that and other banks. Um, and uh, now we've suddenly realized that if you put your money in money markets or in the top four banks, it's safe. But if you leave your money in regional banks, it's, it's merely a deposit backed solely by that bank and the FDIC's, you know, uh, uh, limit, uh, but not fully backed. And you could have it be illiquid, inaccessible or lose part of it in these other banks. And so people are leaving those banks, which which is a big problem for those banks. Uh, and there's there's issues as to, you know, um, will will the FDIC have to issue a massive surcharge onto all its members in order to uh, to provide better backstopping or will the will the Fed have to backstop more of these banks? And the irony is, is that the Fed is raising rates to fight inflation, but the act of backstopping failing banks is inflationary. And so it, it very much is uh, counter purpose. And we very much want this act of raising rates, which is so painful to curb inflation. Um, it's not clear how well that is going, but it's, it's going moderately well. It's not, it's not, it's not exactly Paul Volcker style, um, but backstopping would be inflationary. So my own view on this is, um, you know, is, um, I, I think that, you know, I think the Fed will probably wind up stepping up uh, and the short-term effect will be good of restoring confidence to the banking system, and the long-term effect will be will come out in in you know a longer period for us of having of having higher inflation, which is bad for everyone, and then higher rates to fight that inflation. So, any any thoughts, uh, Ace, on how this affects the and fewer? I think that's right, and I think fewer choices for banking, and I think part of this. Jamie Dimon gets all of our money, and it starts to go like there's aren't that many there aren't actually that many other choices. So you realize, like, if you don't want to pay money management for your 250000 over and over again, you should just give it to the bank that can't fail. So I think that's bad for the regional, especially, I mean, less for Boston, New York and other folks. But, you know, for some of the smaller markets, these were places where, uh, you know, there was some there was some regional backing there that you could go to your regional bank. You could figure out you had a relationship with them. We built that over decades to uh, to realize that that was sort of built on a facade, I think is a big wake up call for everyone. It's not just SVB, but we saw First Republic, um, you know, who wins all of that. And I, one of the interesting things is I saw Brex was gonna be one of the bidders for SVB. I don't know if you mm -hmm. saw that. I go, fascinating, right? The idea that you literally have a, a SVB, which wasn't really in danger of Brex, which sort of switched models abruptly. Uh, you know, Brex trying to take over SVB and I'm going, we need more choices. I want more choices as an entrepreneur, as a, you know, as a regular human, I want more choices in banking, not fewer choices. And, uh, you know, the, so to defend the banks a little bit, these banks that are um, in financial trouble and are seeing depository runs and are seeing uh, uh, bearish pressure on their stocks, um, they uh, received a lot of the, the, the flood the Fed pursued an expansionary monetary policy. They received a lot of deposits. They had to do something yeah. with those deposits. They had to put them in uh, bonds, including medium long-term bonds, collateralized mortgage obligations. Uh, and then the Fed was saying, inflation is transitory. Don't worry about us raising rates. And so the banks had to put that money in those securities. And then all of a sudden the Fed jacked the rates. 
and there's and the and the banks are sitting on bonds with, with low interest rates in a high interest rate environment, and their value declined twenty plus percent, um, which then put them threatened their um, their regulatory ratios and, and put them on the cusp of bankruptcy. So there, there's right. a, a smarter banker could not necessarily have performed better in that. It's 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 a consequence of you know, when Paul Volcker raised rates in the eighties. That horribly affected different people who didn't know in advance, who are smart people who didn't right. know in advance what Volcker would do. So, um, the I guess the next is um, uh, uh, recession. So uh, there's recession talk, um, and there has been for quite a while. Um, and uh, we have Jason Calacanis, who's a market observer and journalist. He has called that we are in a recession and have been for over a month. Um, uh, and he calls it a Fed-caused recession. So we're in the Fed's recession. Um, and when I look at uh, Fidelity's economists, they say that we are at the end of an expansionary period and we're about to go into a contractionary period. And it will likely be a weak contractionary period, so a mild recession, they say. Um, uh, and so what does that mean? So for I think for, um, for entrepreneurs, I think we probably are. So I think I'm, I'm agreeing here with um, with the fidelity view, which I think is pretty mainstream. I think also Lawrence Summers, the economist, is pretty much aligned with the the, um, the fidelity view as well. Um, I think I think I agree with that view. And so what that means is, you know, the, the first thing it means is that entrepreneurs in digital health are often selling into the budgets of institutions. They're selling into the budgets of the employer healthcare budget, or the hospital IT budget, or the pharma budget. Uh, and and these uh, become weaker, so it's tougher to be an entrepreneur uh, and to sell into those budgets uh, during an acknowledged recession. That's the first thing that happens. Uh, in addition, uh, entrepreneurs become I'm sorry, uh, VCs become more skittish. They 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 doubt they, they they don't necessarily see their investment paying off rapidly in 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 uh, growing sales for the companies they're investing in. So they may if. The direct effect is for VCs to become more skittish. The indirect effect for the really good ones and the far-sighted ones is to double down during a recession because there will inevitably be, you know, a, a growth later, and the companies you invested in during a recession will see that that um, that lift. Um, uh, so, uh, and then another effect is that you may be able to get talent more readily. You may be able to get. Uh, software developers uh, who have been laid off by big tech, for example, uh, whereas you might have, might have been very difficult to get, uh, you know, talent, high talented software developers in the past, you may be able to during a recession. And any thoughts on are we going into recession and how does it affect um, the innovation economy? I would say that listening to David Sachs and Jason Calcanis on All In podcast, which, um, you know, we're on David Sachs platform. So I'll just say, I'll keep it keep it light, and I'll just say I, I I read the Economist, I read Bloomberg. We just spent ten years of an amazing growth where we printed money with wild abandon. The idea that that would continue on exactly as is, when we've just printed so much cash and we've run up the bill. You know what? It's okay to actually have a little bit. Uh, I don't think we've thrown the anchor out fully yet. You still see houses going, you know, in a week uh, in certain markets. It would be okay if your house didn't double every year, um, and I think some things like that, in terms of like interest rates going up, have a lot of really weird, weird perverse things downstream that uh, you know we're going to have to deal with. And I think like like the early '80s, we had very high interest rates. I remember my parents talking about 16% and 14% interest rates on mortgages in the early '80s, and uh, 
you know, I don't think it's going back to the zero interest world that we lived, you know, that we were living in a few years ago. Yeah. So now we'll move on to valuation. So the most recent SAS capital index um, for April is that median valuation levels for all public SAS companies were 6.5 times forward revenue. And that was down from the prior month, which was 7.1 times forward revenue. Um, and a long-term median for SaaS companies of eight times forward revenue. Um, so that, that's interesting that we've seen some value pull in in SaaS companies um, uh, at now. Uh, and that's probably because of the lift in, in interest rates that we've seen over the past uh, couple of months um, and also recession fears as well. Uh, so now high growth SaaS, which would be a lot of digital health companies, is still in the eight to 12 times forward revenue. Um, but this compares with the highs of 2021 when you had the median SaaS was at 16 times forward revenue and high growth SaaS was at 30 to 35 times forward revenue. Now, I don't think we'll see nearly 0% risk-free interest rate again and I don't think that we're going to see valuation levels that high again. But it also shows you that there's a lot of companies out there that might have actually raised money and been valued at those levels. And there's there's kind of a reckoning that has to happen. First thing is they have to belt tighten because they have to figure out how to sort of um, make it through a couple years of a lean fundraising environment. But then they have to figure out if they get an offer, you know, for eight times forward revenue to buy the company, would they take it? Uh, if they get a, if they do a fundraise and they get offered 10 times forward revenue, uh, you know, would, would they take it? And if, if they wouldn't, because maybe a, some board members don't want to, or because, or for some reason, um, you know, then they wind up their, their equity is upside down for their current employees. Um, and those current employees are wondering, am I going to get made whole through stock options uh, in the future? Uh, or, you know, the, there's companies that could join today that will give me, that are younger, that will give me a bigger piece of the pie today, maybe. So um, anyway, I don't know if you have any thoughts about um, what these valuation levels mean for um, existing companies, companies at, at stage B or C or whatever. I think there's a lot of belt tightening going on everywhere, just like you wanted to cut, you know, reduction in force meant your stock price was going up and everyone who's going to go either raise money or has raised money is going to go in and look at, they're looking carefully at their expenses and they're figuring out what they can cut. So obviously Salesforce, I mean, we looked at Salesforce versus HubSpot and Salesforce was raising, raising their rates. And I go, wow, I don't think that's something I want to go do. And so you realize you know, I think not all of the companies are going to be exactly, I mean, that's a giant, anybody counting MRR is a big, it's a big category. And so you start to look at like, I think you've got a lot of uncertainty and as well as technological change. Um, one of the things that I think about is, can you imagine you have, a, you actually are using open AI to literally rebuild code, just like blank. I want to go build this just like that. People are going to spin up their own software. And that's a very real outcome. So when you're starting to think about these high, high multiples, you go like, is this, gonna, is this party gonna continue forever? Or was this just a blip for a while because it was faster to buy than to build yourself? Yeah, one of the business theses I've seen around AI, so one of the major use cases of AI is coding to, to um, allow junior coders to code like senior coders, to allow senior coders yeah. to code three times as fast. And so some people have said, uh, you know, just pick 
the biggest SaaS categories of B2B or in our case of digital health, uh, and then just re just start a new company today and rebuild all the code, um, but tart, but cherry pick, pick the, the, the most deluxe customers of salesforce.com with fresh code built today that meets their needs. You know, that, that's sort of what Viva did. Viva said, we're going to take the, yeah. you know, the regulated pharma market where money is no object in that market and they're happy to pay more. Um, and Viva went and built its own, you know, but, you know, cherry pick uh, the, the big SaaS category. And built it on Salesforce, and built it on Salesforce which adds yeah. even more to that story. You know, um, but people today could, uh, you know, could go and, and sort of and rebuild and, and, and go after and try to devour some of the older companies that um, have an older code base uh, and have, may have bloatware and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, so just summarizing more on valuation, uh, the valuation environment is still risk off on Wall Street. That's pretty obvious. But that that mean tends to mean that earnings negative companies that's seen as a negative. So sometimes there's a risk on environment where high growth earnings negative companies, that's a huge positive to be that, but it's it, the, right. the valuation environment today is still very much risk off. Um, and the IPO window, the IPO window is closed. However, we're seeing something very interesting. We're only about a week into it, but the other week, um, J and J spun out Kenview, their consumer division, which has Tylenol and Band-Aid, um, and it, it IPO'd. And what happened was the stock, you know, the stock was up based on the public offer price. And since then it has stayed up. Um, and so that is what you need to see an opening of the IPO window. The reason there's no series C deals and crossover deals and getting done is because the IPO window is closed. No one can plan on a successful IPO, but uh, Kenview has just had a successful IPO and there's more coming. So, um, uh, you know, prominent tech IPOs include Instacart is planning an IPO and ARM, the UK chip maker, is planning an IPO. Uh, and I heard there's 40 IPOs being planned, not all in tech. Um, uh, and uh, but w once we've had a few successful IPOs in tech and the Kenview one as well, um, that will cause boards of digital health unicorns to say, well, we want to IPO as well. Um, so we're, we, the thing, you know, we've We've had a couple important catalysts fall into place. The first is that the Fed raised rates a quarter point and then said it's stopping raising rates. That's good. The second is that Kenview IPO'd and the stock went up and has stayed up. That's good. Um, so these are you, you may see a couple cylinders starting to get going um, in the uh, you know in, in the um, the innovation economy of companies that need to raise money and investors need to put money to work. Um, so any thoughts on um, on the IPO window and the valuation environment? I'll ask sort of uh, ask you, I know you covered it last week about Babylon Health and you start to look at some of those as like, is that a almost like a negative signal um, about where, where digital health is headed? And in terms of how, how open the IPO market is for these former unicorn, I mean, I, I don't remember their valuation, but the SPAC went out at a pretty high rate. Um, and so does that actually take away from that story? Does it yeah. push it out another quarter or two? You know, um, so, uh, you know, the, the, the public company story is is pretty awful. Um, uh, so you have many companies trading at, at down 80 percent. This is often growth companies that are earnings negative. You had Babylon Health down. I think the number was 99 percent. It's back that multi-billion stock was up to something like 250 now down to, you know, it can barely keep it above $1, having to take it off delist because it can't uh, consistently right. meet the minimum requirements of a public company. Um, and uh, so, 
uh, and then you know most SPACs are far below where they IPO'd. Um, uh, many companies that IPO'd recently um, uh, have a, a valuation level lower than their um, right. and the total invested in the company. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that, so that's, um, and, and, you know, that's both is caution about more IPOs. Um, but it's also a statement about the quality of those companies when they went out and also sort of the, the, the frenzy okay. of investor interest in a zero interest rate environment uh, as well. So, the, so in general, though, uh, fund managers are always interested in new IPOs because it's a rare chance that they can participate in a kind of alpha where, where they could yeah. see the stock go up 15% in the first day or more uh, on, a, you know, on an oversubscribed I, uh, IPO. Uh, and so uh, if we, and so their uh, 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 mutual funds have cash for IPOs and they're just waiting to see if there'll be a stream of successful IPOs and then they'll all want to, to get in. And then some of those, um, those digital health unicorns can go public. Now, digital health companies have a sad track record of having squishy business models. And so the one, the, the unicorns that are going to go public are going to need to be the ones with really solid revenue models. Um, uh, and then, you know, for the remaining digital health unicorns, um, they may wind up becoming what, uh, you know, was it was it uh, David Sachs called uh, zombie corns, um, which is yeah. companies that can't go public, have upside down cap tables, and then the talent leaves um, and goes and joins an AI startup in healthcare. Uh, yeah. So, I, I would just I, say the last, you know, Chamath, Chamath would be the third of the four four horsemen on that one with all the SPACs that went out. And you know, I've I've chatted with you before about all in. I want to throw my phone half the time when I'm listening to it. It's just <laughs> aggravating. Um, they're really smart guys. It's just some of the stuff is just aggravating. But yeah, I, I think a lot of the quality of the SPACs were pretty poor. We're seeing that now. It doesn't necessarily mean the IPOs that are coming out are poor, but it does seem to have a little bit of a chilling effect, at least on digital health. When you have that and you have, you know, I think you're, you're going to probably get to, um, you know, Hippocratic AI. And when you see what happened to Health IQ with, you know, $177 million in, uh, there's some cautionary tales in the space, in sure tech and in digital health space. Mm -hmm. Great. So next we'll talk about news of the week. And so here I'm going to call attention to some stories in the press that I think are relevant to our audience. And also for our audience, this is a time for you to, you know, in the chat, you can, you can ask us about stories you see in the press, get our comments and thoughts on them. So the news in general, the past week, remained relatively slow. There was not a lot of fundraising. Uh, in general, there continues to be more layoffs than success stories uh, in the field. Um, and uh, But I think intriguingly, uh, Hippocratic AI that you just mentioned, Ace, uh, launched yeah. with a $50 million fundraise founded by Manjal Shaw, who was backed by General Catalyst's uh, Himant Tanea, uh, building a large language model for healthcare. So that, that's probably the, the most obvious, since the launch of ChatGPT, the most obvious startup has been create a large language model for healthcare. And here it is arriving just on, right on time, also backed by Andreessen Horowitz. Um, and so this is, this is a, a launch. So this is a, a Series A effectively. Um, and so what I see here is a couple things. The first is obviously AI. 
So AI is the hottest category in tech and the hottest category in digital health right now. And here you have a serial entrepreneur who may have stumbled on his last company, but he's rushing to get out in front of this trend. Um, and so you'd expect them to get funded. You'd expect them to get funded by name brand uh, venture funds. And so here we see uh, leading investors are leading. Uh, General Catalyst, Andreessen Horowitz. This, this is looking like a classic venture deal. A lot of the deals we've covered over the last several weeks have looked like a, a company could barely put a syndicate together and there were no mainstream venture fund names in the syndicate, which looked odd compared to six quarters ago or, or whatever. But here you have, you know, uh, both you have an AI company being launched. You'd expect that to happen. And you have lead investors leading again. And I like to think this is the beginning of the wedge of, um, of mainstream funds who have a lot of dry powder starting to jump from the bleachers back into the pool, at least for AI companies, companies with AI angles, that's a lot of them. Um, uh, and we, this could, we could see you know, some FOMO start to happen with investors and start to get them back into the game. So uh, anyway, what, what did you think? You, you commented already about Hippocratic AI. Any more thoughts? Yeah. Well, I, I will say, and I, so I don't know the company, haven't looked at the deck, um, but I will say, you know, Health IQ actually has multiple lawsuits against it. They they were they fired a thousand people or something like that over in one day, uh, breaking the California Warren Act. So there's actually lawsuits going on for that. Um, and this, you know, this is that, that's one part of it. I think that's kind of interesting. And the second part is Andreessen Horowitz going in. You mentioned Clubhouse before. Come on. When was the last time either one of us had even thought about Clubhouse? OK. Um, I think it's capital as a service. You have a lot of money. Let's go in and figure out how we can just say we own this category. We'll figure out what we're doing later. Um, I will. I will just say the the other story, which I know that you were you were that you're about to mention about Amino, much more interesting in terms of the care navigation and actual real business going in and doing stuff and you know having success and building on it. But the idea of actually a LLM based healthcare company, you know. There are there's going to be a ton of them, and I, I don't know if that's that interesting to me um, as it was for as all my friends were very interested in it. For me, it wasn't as interesting. That's great. So that, that that's pretty harsh on Hippocratic AI. So I definitely need to have you back on the show more often because we need. Well, when they when they buy <laughs> us, how about this? No, it's when when they turn out to be really the best company out there. I will just say no, no, no. I changed my mind. I reserve the right to be wrong. But I think one of the things that the harsh part of it is actually, um, look, at building an LLM, okay, I got it. You're gonna go off and train a bunch of content. Uh, you're gonna go figure out how to have a safety first kind of method. Um, but that's all great if you weren't actually, if the last company wasn't getting penalized for their unsafe practices. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that we know from the lawsuits where that they were going in and they were, they were not doing the right thing by the way of the consumer. So. This this one, and I'll say just uh, NCMR, the company I work for, is we're not we're far smaller than Health IQ is, um, but it is we're in the same space. So I understood what they were doing, and what they were doing I was very clever. There was a lot of smart stuff there. So nothing, not meaning to be harsh as much as not as excited as everyone else. So then uh, Amino Health, uh, a health navigation platform, David Vivero, the CEO there, raised $80 million, uh, led by Transformation Capital, uh, Michael Dixon there. So just great news all in all. Um, I think yeah. Transformation Capital was the only uh, you know, mainstream fund mentioned. Um, 
And so this this just shows that you know that there's still um, you know that the health navigation space was out of favor for a while because of cast lights, yeah. uh, and now is back in favor. And there's still a lot of of intriguing there's problems with patients and employees accessing care and just navigating care and getting to high value care, which is what employers care about. Um, and here's an innovative solution. So this is showing, you know, once again, this is a, like a half step back toward a, a healthier investment environment to see this deal go through. Uh, any thoughts about that? Um, no, I think it's a great, you know, really interesting company. I, I, I agree with you. It's actually post Castlight. I don't know if we've seen that many other companies that have, you know, been able to execute. Castlight certainly didn't. It promised a lot, um, but wasn't able to execute on it. And it sounds like Amino is. So that's that's really great news for the whole market. That's great. And did you have any stories for our, our news section that you wanted to call attention to? Uh, so Validic bought a company um, and I like, or, you know, I like Validic, human API and Validic. And these are sort of like, this is the plumbing kind of companies that are behind the scenes moving API health data. Um, I have not had a chance to go deeper into it, but, you know, there, there was M&A this week. There were things going on. It seems like we're, we're starting to see you know, news pop up. And that one wasn't that big. I actually got it because I'm, I've been playing with the API. Um, but it, it seems I have, I'll, I'll actually on the next time, I'll actually uh, I'll do a better job of doing my homework on it, but it seems super interesting. And Bessemer Venture Partners um, today announced um, a $1 billion, um, uh, announced it committed a billion dollars in funding to AI based companies. Very impressive uh, for, Bessemer and highlights the theme of AI. Um, and then um, did you want to talk about the, the JAMA uh, study? Yeah. So I think when we were chatting about it, we were talking about chatbots and we were talking about, I think there was at one point, 86 different people who have decided that they're going to build their own doctor where you could actually diagnose yourself. And I think one of the issues is actually that's not the problem. Okay. The problem, the problem is related to risk. It's related to accuracy. It's related to reputation, experience, quality, and all these different factors. Um, so I don't think the chatbot itself is enough of interest, but the JAMA study that came out and everyone was like, oh my gosh, they're better than humans. Um, and the study was really small. It was like a couple hundred folks, I think. Um, and the idea was that when they gave the answer, the answers were just a lot nicer when the computer wrote them out. And people gave it a scorecard, one to five, and they actually, you know, they basically said, um, you know, and this was actually not, and uh, George Matthew, who I will just say, uh, you know, is a good friend of mine and an advisor to my company, uh, just mentioned in the Ruben chat that it's actually, it compared chatbot to social media posting docs. And that's, that's exactly it. It's not the same as actually asking a real question to the chatbot. And that's what everyone was framing it as. It's going like, how did they answer it? How did you feel about it? Did you trust them more? And you gave them a scoring. And it turns out the doctors are busy, busy. And they wrote more of a, uh, perhaps a concise, uh, not George Matthew, he's got great bedside manner, but, um, but the idea that they probably wrote a more concise and less friendly uh, way. So I think, I think the way to think about the chatbots is it can reduce physician burnout. Um, it can actually help triage right? So you can actually start to get some of that information up front. Um, but this is not going to be, we're not replacing all the doctors uh, yet. So <laughs> maybe soon enough. Um, so um, not only can 
uh, AI passed the Turing test, but now it has better bedside manner than doctors, um, as if doctors didn't have enough to worry about um, with, yeah. with technologists breathing down their throats and trying to take their businesses away from them. Um, yeah. So any other news of the week before we move on to conferences, Ace? Yeah, I was going to say um, LRV Health, which I think is here in New England. They just raised a $200 million digital health fund, which um, sort of got uh, buried uh, buried underneath. I guess if you Bessemer comes in with a billion, 200 doesn't seem like a lot, but that's pretty great for the digital health community. And they've, they've had a lot of great stuff in their portfolio. Olive, I think, and among others. Um, and ZocDoc sounded like they were getting some uh, with the urgent care clinics and going off and expanding. So that seemed interesting as well. That was from, um, I haven't talked to anybody over there, but uh, it sounds like it was going pretty well. It's about time. I'm, I'm so bored with just like hearing about layoffs. It's about time to hear someone actually expanding. Um, yeah. So great news. Um, so then upcoming conferences. So for our audience, feel free to ask if there's conferences you're thinking of going. And we, we tend to look at these conferences from the perspective of the, a digital health leader, so typically a CEO or other mm -hmm. leader of a digital health company, should you go to this conference? So um, I'll mention, the first one I'll look at is Bio. Uh, it's coming up June 5th to 8th in Boston. Uh, tickets are $3,500. Um, so uh, to understand Bio, you know, 95% uh, of the people there are there for the molecules. And so if you're one of the 5% of people that, who are there for the software, um, it's, a, it's a mess finding other people who are interested in software there. So who would you find there? You would find a pharma innovation executive who's interested in software. You would find a pharma, a pharma brand manager or corporate development executive uh, or a pharma venture fund person. And all of them, uh, if, if you should try to find out in advance if they're actually truly are interested in this, um, because they, their whole career might be molecules, in which case they're probably not interested in you. Um, and uh, uh, you'll also find uh, clinical uh, leaders and managers who have a budget to buy software are there as well. Um, and you'll, you'll also find um, venture funds, lots and lots of venture funds, either they're um, you know, FDA risk venture funds that dabble a little bit in, uh, in software, uh, or they are, um, you know, they, so there'll be a small number of venture funds that are IT focused as well. So that's a reason to go. They have a startup stadium. I'd participate in that. They have a business forum, one-on-one -on -one partnering meetings. I participate in that. My favorite tactic is to look at everyone who's speaking and pick who you want to meet. And then also uh, pick your favorite people in all of biopharma, make a list of them, and then just email all of them as if they're going and just say, I want to meet and just see, see who will meet. You don't need to, we don't need anyone's permission not to do that. Uh, and a lot of people from biopharma are going. Uh, and they're in meeting mode. They're very, they're happy to meet. Uh, and so, uh, I, and, um, let's see the, so for, um, so that's, so I'd say if you are a digital health CEO and you sell into the biopharma manufacturing community, you sell into the commercial budget, you sell into the clinical budget, you sell into the infrastructure budget, or your digital therapeutics or diagnostics in some way, I would go to bio and I would do these things to do meetings designed to accelerate my agenda in terms of, uh, you know, revenue, product partnering that sort of and fundraising and that sort of thing so do you, do you have any thoughts on on bio you know it's pharma tech it's not even something that uh you know you got to pick your battles so it's not even something that is on my on my radar but it sounds great so then also coming up is the digital healthcare innovation summit also in boston june 6th to 7th um flair and humana are the co-chairs this year tickets are one thousand five hundred dollars um 
There's an early bird uh, ticket price expiration date coming up. Um, and uh, so um, this is going to be see very heavy attendance from East Coast VCs. So Boston, New York, DC, other East Coast VCs, maybe Chicago VCs as well. Um, this is an unusual conference. This is a, an, an independent investor conference. The vast majority of investor conferences are run by sell-side investment banks, and, and you're not invited unless uh, you have some insider connection to them. But this is one where you can actually go. Uh, and the typical investor is a VC, not a public investor. Uh, and it's actually focused on digital healthcare, which is great. This is focused on the healthcare services side, not on the biotech side. Um, and so uh, it's a great environment to uh, to meet with VCs. So I would literally, you know, sit down, make a list of all the VCs, uh, East Coast VCs, all the VCs who appear in the literature of the conference, all the VCs uh, on the East Coast, write them and say, let's, I'm going, let's meet. So I like this one. By the way, I've, I've gone several years in a row. I used to live next door to this conference in the recent past. Um, uh, and, uh, but I'm also partnering with this conference this year. So they gave me a code for my audience, Investor Talk 10. So you get, you get a 10% discount uh, on your ticket if you use the, the code Investor Talk 10 in registering for them. So that's the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. Save yourself a lot of time uh, traveling around to visit VCs on the East Coast by going to their uh, conference in Boston coming up June 6th to 7th. And, and they're also known for their cocktail party on June 6th on the Tuesday, which is, a, which is a great cocktail party. So any thoughts on that, uh, Ace? Yeah, that, that one's actually, I have a lot of friends that are coming in uh, from New Jersey, from New York, et cetera, who are coming in for the conference. So I think that's on my, I wasn't thinking about it until I realized how many people were coming in for it. It's only a few weeks away. Um, so I've got to, I've got to see if I can swing it. Um, I think, I think I, one of the things with conferences and I'll just sort of say, if you are in a place where you're raising money, it's an efficient way to get the first meeting out of the way. Um, so I think one of the things that I, I I'm thinking about is basically what are the conferences that I want to go to over the, over the year, I have a certain amount of money that I've actually earmarked for being able to go to things. Um, but what I found to be equally, and we're lucky, both you and I are lucky enough to live in Boston, but just a couple of days ago when we were able to go to the TEDx Boston about AI and healthcare, oh my goodness, just so many great people. What I found is actually, I have found the smaller conferences less, not only about price, but also just, it's more intimate. I can talk to the people, I can figure out who's in the back um, and actually get, get to a conversation faster without, you know, a lot of, uh, formality of trying to email them and set it up with their assistant, et cetera, before. So that, that is definitely a disease of the digital health world. So first of all, if there's one thing that people in digital health like to do more than build digital health products, it's go to conferences. Um, right. uh, but then oftentimes decision makers don't go to big conferences. And so the, the biggest example of this is actually hymns with hymns. The whole organization is focused around one job title, the hospital CIO. That is literally the, the, the purpose of this nonprofit association. Um, and so uh, all of the software vendors who's like the EMR vendors who sell to the, into that budget had to go to HIMSS to meet the CIOs and talk to their existing client CEOs and pitch new CEO, C, I'm sorry, new CIOs. Um, and then the CIOs pretty much stopped going. <laughs> so, what, what, why are people going to hymns? Um, and now we've had a, a, a but there's uh, 25,000 other people walking around yeah. in these massive booths. So there's no lack of people there. 
Um, but it just might not be the ones you're looking for if you're a small, smaller startup or looking to raise or trying to get to a decision maker um, might not be the right place. And, and as um, health in November in Las Vegas grows much bigger, people, I've noticed people are starting to be concerned that, you know, you, you used to meet, uh, you know, the CEO of a, and a decision maker, you know, in the hallway and they were not rushed and they had time and, and you had one-on-one -on -one time with them. And now people are, are expressing the same concern about, about health as well, that it's, it's such a party. It's grown so popular. So many people go for so many different reasons that it's not serving its original marketplace function of letting, of giving vendors time to sell to, to decision makers with budgets. Um, so uh, let's see other so um, if you're coming, if you live in Boston or you're coming to Boston for bio or the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, I'm hosting a drinks night uh, for Investor Talk listeners, along with Xuan Gui, who's a friend of the show and who's co-hosting co his own drinks night for health disruptors. So it's two great tastes, taste great together. We're getting together to do a drinks night. Um, and the event's going to be Monday, June 5th um, at a bar in downtown Boston to be announced. To register for that, go to my Eventbrite page, which is stephenwardell.eventbrite.com and look up the June 5th event. Um, so um, any other conferences that, that are coming up uh, for people who sell into the healthcare consumer and patient? Are, are there conferences for, or for, for marketing brand managers? Are there conferences for them coming up? There's, as you said, the, the only thing, agency, there are agency people like conferences as well. Um, I, I try not. I try not to go to those because they're usually about awards that they're giving to themselves. But um, I would say the two that are always on my list, and it depends if you have a payer focus or not. But I, I look at InsureTech, um, which is in Vegas. It's a couple weeks after Health. Having Health is sort of at the beginning of October. InsureTech is towards the end of October. I don't think I need to be in Vegas that entire month. But they're both in Vegas, and that's pretty much everyone will be there, even if they are not. Uh, necessarily speaking or have a booth, et cetera, everyone just goes there and it's easy to go set up those meetings. Um, so in my mind, I'm kind of looking at that and going summers, uh, you know, it's not, it's not good or bad. It's just, I, I'd rather not go to conferences. I'd rather spend time with the fam. Uh, and so in terms of travel and things like that, um, I sort of save it up for the spring and fall. That's great. And every year I'm always looking for excuses to go to, can Lions, um, yeah. uh, and also to uh, Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, but I, I can never justify. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to go, and I, I can't yeah. figure out to justify the business expense. Um, so I think I worked on a campaign that won something once. On that, I was not invited. I was too low on the totem pole back then, early in my career. But uh, yeah, I think that stuff would be great. It'd be great to be in Monaco. It'd be great to be in fancy places like Khan, but um, I don't know. It's, uh, but I, I think the conference part, the other part that I see that we got trained during COVID is that we're trained now to actually go figure out, if we want to go talk to somebody, we can go figure out how to go meet them without having to jump on a plane and waste two days. I think that is actually sort of like, a, there's a check there. Just like I'm wor I'd be worried about being in the commercial office space building space, I'd also be worried about being in the conference space because you know, it just doesn't seem like I, I, I was at health and I saw salt and pepper and I saw like the roots. I go, I'm not there to see a concert. I'm there to go meet clients or uh, potential partners. And so I think the party type atmosphere to me isn't as useful. Um, this is sort of making myself seem boring, but uh, 
you know, I just want, I want to be a little bit more efficient with the time and spending five days out in Vegas is someone's idea of fun, but not my own. So industry reports. Um, I didn't see any reports come out this week that were of interest to, to our audience, but did you see any reports come out this week? Uh, I was reading through um, some advisory board stuff um, that was interesting. They're talking about, you know, in terms of consumerization, et cetera. It may have been up, it may have not been this week. It may have been this past month or so. Um, that was interesting. And I, and I think there was one from a company called Payments about, um, which is spelled P-Y-M-N-T-S, uh, which I guess is payments without vowels. Um, but it basically, it was a super light, you know, it's like 10 page deck and I'll save you the time. But basically the idea that people, including older Americans, want better and faster healthcare services that they can get through digital. And they've done a, a bunch of surveys and that online healthcare is going mainstream. And everyone wants to think that the older Americans, if you read Becker's, Becker's has some different numbers basically talking about that, uh, you know, 26% of older Americans were going online for online health in the patient portals. And that in terms of the Gen Z folks, it was something like 50, 60%. They didn't even want to talk to the doctor. They just wanted to be in the portal. Um, but it sounds like it might be a little bit more balanced than that. There's a lot of folks that uh, in all the groups that expect to be able to go online to figure out their healthcare. Yeah, so one of the silver linings of COVID is, uh, you know, that historically healthcare has been very hard to change because it's really hard to change the behavior of doctors and of patients. And COVID actually, and also for that matter of regulators as well. Um, and so COVID uh, did this incredible thing was it, it, it changed the behavior of doctors to want to do online care and changed the behavior of patients to want online care and changed regulators to, to reimburse online care um, and got the wiring all in place. Um, uh, and so I think we'll see more and more online care. And then when you think about you know, certain demographics it's like if, if you think about you know mental health for the Zoomer generation, for them it's going to start with their phone. It's not going to start with driving to you know a therapy clinic uh, and parking and then waiting in a waiting room and then and then walking into a room and sitting on a couch. Uh, you know, so I think we really have sort of changed um, the behavior of uh, and the expectations of a generation. Um, and then you also have you know a, a countervailing force, which is that the emergency um, decrees. Uh, around uh, COVID um, uh, uh, for reimbursing telehealth are expiring. Um, uh, and uh, 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 and so um, uh, uh, state medical boards are stepping in and trying to force care to go back into the clinic. Um, and so it's gonna be battles in America on a state-by-state -state basis where state medical boards tend to be conservative. They want the care back in the clinic. Uh, and then there's all this uh, Patients and tech companies and others want to, uh, you know, keep care in, you know, uh, online. So we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a little bit. I, I think I, I'm just going to go as a market-based person. I'm going to say that I think consumer behavior has already spoken. You need to have a good, you, you know, user experience. I think the idea of actually, why would I go in for an go into a doctor's appointment for something that could be a quick televisit. Um, I think in the old days, we thought that that was the only choice. Um, and a quick, a quick aside here is that when I made a, vi a recent visit um, with my doctor, he wanted a follow-up in a month. 
when I booked the follow-up, it was a televisit, and they, I had to confirm that I was in, going to take the call in the state of Massachusetts. I thought that was, that was at, at MGH Brigham. I thought that was fascinating, that I actually could not take the call in New Hampshire or anywhere else. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, yeah. Well, good. So now, now we're moving on to the next part of our show, which is reaching the patient in 2023, how to access patients um, and how, how access is being cut off by big tech companies and how to break through. So this is your area of expertise. What is going on in the world of online engagement with patients today? Well, the good news is it's, it's a, a pretty wide topic. And I think there's a lot of ways to look at what is a, you know, what is a patient versus what is a consumer? How are people looking at things? Um, I kind of was looking, you know, when I mentioned the advisory board and I was looking at a couple other documents. I was trying to understand what does the conventional wisdom think about what are the, what are the decision-making factors for customer care decisions? Like, how are they making these decisions? And the first part seems to be, you know, as, we, as you'd expect, it's about cost. It's about insurance coverage. And, you know, you start to think about that online. Um, I don't know, you know, those of us in Boston know that it's really hard to get a PCP. Um, it's incredible that we have so many great doctors here, but if somebody wants a, a primary care physician, you can't, I mean, I get calls from people who are new in town and I go, there's no one here at all. You got to go to forward. You got to go, you know, to one medical and hopefully get it done that way to get your pre-authorizations or whatever but it's almost impossible to find a PCP in the city of Boston that will actually take a new patient. Uh, crazy for a city like Boston. So I think access, like the idea of like access related questions are a big part. Um, I think quality is an quality and experience. I mentioned experience before, like what is that user experience? Everyone knows the one medical experience or forward experience, it's nicer. The places are nicer, they answer the phone, they respond back quickly. The people probably, you know, they seem less battle tested. <laughs> Everyone seems to be happy to help you. Um, I think one of the things about like, how do we go in terms of online engagement? People are going everywhere. They're going to TikTok. I mean, one of the big healthcare trends is looking for people going in, like talking about mental health as you did. People are, are, are looking at ADHD solutions on TikTok. As Adderall starts to become, you know, constrained in supply, people are going to TikTok to figure out what they can do. They're not going to Mayo Clinic. <laughs> They're not going to their local physician, okay, to figure out, or even at the dispensing physician. They're actually going to TikTok. And I think this is, it's a much wider scope um, than we ever could have imagined, I think, five or 10 years ago, about where all of this flow is coming from. So uh, a lot of digital health companies care a lot about referral management and how referrals are made and how they can steer referrals. And there used to be this magic moment when your PCP would refer you to someone or alternately you'd walk out, you'd, you'd walk out of your house to your fence with your older neighbor and ask your neighbor who their cardiologist was. Um, and all that's going to be gone in the future. And we're all going to get our referrals and our, and our medical knowledge from TikTok in the future, it sounds like. Yeah, I think, well, TikTok certainly one one place, and we'll talk a little bit more about the recent changes in Google. Um, but I think one of the things that I think about for that is actually the quality, the experience, the reviews, and who they trust. I mean, trust is really the big factor here. Do you, I mean, as, as, as we think about the payer, do they go to the payer when you want to go look for your PCP, if you want to find that cardiologist? Well, the first step is, are they in my network? 
Okay. That's the first question you're going to ask. It doesn't really matter if he's the world's greatest cardiologist, if you can't afford him or can't get an appointment or if he's not in network. And so I think have you, if you've ever tried to use those websites, it's very poor. So I know you were at the, uh, at the TEDx event we were mentioning before as well, but there was a great company called CascadeHealth.ai or Cascade Health AI. And I loved what they were doing. And what they, what they basically did was they fed an LLM, they trained an LLM on a ton of different insurance plans and a ton of different doctors and providers. And they could actually tell you, I would like to go see a high quality cardiologist that's in my network. Um, now they're still, they literally launched, I think on Monday. <laughs> so it's still, it is not, a, it's not across the country yet. And I think Boston is one of their test cases. I, they believe they said they were out of Seattle, but this is, I think where we're headed is I know I'm going to go to some place that I trust. I know I'm going to go to some place where I can afford it, right? I have insurance coverage. Um, and I'm, I care about reviews and you mentioned, you know, referrals. I might get the referral from you if I'm getting, you know, a knee replacement or something, you know, let's just say neither one of us have new knees yet someday, I hope. But it's, uh, but the idea is like when we do, I go like, oh, who'd you go to? And that's great. We have the same insurance. So I think that's an interest, you know, I think it's an interesting problem about like what's going on in online insurance, like uh, online engagement. It's coming from everywhere. No one knows how to control it. Engagements, you've got to be, I mean, I'm sure there's a Pinterest part of this. I'm sure there's all, people are on Reddit. I know I do, um, I'm an advisor to a Teledrum company out in Palo Alto. Uh, skincare addiction on Reddit is a very popular forum and I see referral traffic and it comes in from there. Um, there it's fascinating. I mean, this is, if you want to get, I don't, you know, just sort of speaking generally, dermatology is one of those specialties where if you want an appointment in a place like Boston, New York, LA, uh, it might be 90 to 180 days before you can get an appointment. Uh, it is that full, like that. Some of those specialties are very busy. If you're worried about some sort of a brown spot and you're worried it might be cancer because WebMD says it's always cancer, um, you know, if, what do you do? So telederm and some of the telehealth stuff can fit, you know, can come in there and start to be useful where the traditional paths aren't there. Um, and I think this is a bigger idea about this is choice architecture and the idea from a consumer perspective about choosing money versus quality. I know skincare addiction and Reddit, some guy in his mom's basement, probably not the best choice, but it's better than what I got right now. It's going to be 180 days before I see the derm. Let me try what they have. Um, and I think that's that's a really interesting place now where we've we're not really sure, you know, who are the where does the trust lie? It's probably not the payer. It could be the, the provider, but you don't have a strong enough depth with that. You know, you may not have a deep relationship with your provider. It's not like the old days. Um, and so we start to think about like all the other places where influencers come in. Uh, God forbid, but influ <laughs> influencers come in and. You know, one of the companies we didn't mention that did get bought was Deepak Chopra sold his company this week um, to a healthy living or healing solutions, something, uh, a group, you know, a group that's going to go off and take that natural healing and sort of spiritual approach and start to roll it out even bigger. And so I think we're going to see a lot more wider. What is medicine? How does it get paid for? We're going to see a lot more a wider definition of that. So one of the themes of today's call is this idea. So imagine our audience has brands who want to reach patients. 
young brands. So um, one of the ideas of this call is the idea that, that it's harder to do so because big tech has more market power somehow. Um, what's going on there? Why is it harder for brands to reach patients and what kind of market power does big tech have and what are they doing? This is what's keeping me up at night. This is, um, you know, and I'll, I'll just say, I've actually been a pretty good prognosticator of where things are headed. I, I, my first job was working and building mobile phone network in South Asia. I, could, I knew mobile phones were gonna be big and I, I kind of like have surfed from place to place. I'll tell you right now, it's actually really funny where I'm, I think like a lot of people, I'm going, wow, this future is certainly different. Um, a little more, more like an episode of Black Mirror than I expected. <laughs> and, you know, and it affects everything. So I think when you start to think about like the intersection of tech, marketing and health, some people have one, don't have the other two. Some people have two or three. Very rarely do you have all three. Um, the, the FANG, you know, in different capacities, I would say that Amazon, obviously, Google, obviously, um, have all three of those. But you start to look at like what matters and how, what, how does this information flow? Um, what matters to consumers? I mean, is it its trust, its accuracy, its access? As great as BARD is, um, I think their last thing that they said was, oh, we're 85% accurate, okay? Which is pretty good, except for in a your money, your life situation, which is what they call the categories of health and finance. And so for those, you have to be 100% right. It has to be trained, et cetera. So I think what we're seeing now is things like SEO, things like paid search, which used to be pretty cut and dry, hire an SEO firm, build out a bunch of content, hire an agency, do a bunch of, you know, go figure out where your audience is. Are they on LinkedIn? Are they on, on Google? Are they on Facebook, Insta? That's changing. And what we're starting to see is actually the consolidation of that money where, um, and in the consolidation of that power for SEO. So for, for a young firm who's trying to figure out how to get found, you're starting to look at, when I mentioned TikTok, it's sort of as a precursor to this is like, um, that's going to be one of those channels. Whether we call it TikTok or we call it short term, short form YouTube videos. Um, what Google announced at Google I.O. was kind of bone chilling and exciting and scary and fun all at the same time. They're, they're taking whatever, 92% of their revenue. They control 96% of search. Um, to tell you how much they, they control, chat GPT is now bigger than Bing <laughs> in terms of like how many people go to it. Right, so Bing's been at it for 10, 12 years. ChatGPT is bigger. And Google is basically, they run everything. So when Google changes, when they change something, a lot of things get you know, changed downstream. And so what we're seeing from content perspective, if you were going off, if you are an information intermediary, things are gonna look a little bit different. If you're somebody who's actually delivering direct value to a customer, something that can be sold, okay? You know, that's actually more interesting. If you're a direct brand, if you're somebody selling a pharmacological solution, a medical device, et cetera, like, hey, here's something that could be there. You can appear in the snippet. Um, and what Google has done, just for those that don't know, is if you know, if you type in something in Google, you get, there used to be this featured snippet at the top and people would, were scared of it at first. They thought that that's not where traffic would come from. It was Google stealing their information. We later have figured out that actually that's a good thing. Um, and we get more traffic if we get a featured snippet. Well, now they're getting rid of featured snippets. 
and they're putting in an entire generative AI panel. And that's going to take away a lot of clicks from the, your website. It's going to mean that you've actually got to go create content that is there, that you've got to build that content for the systems in place, for the, you know, for GPT chat, for Bing, for, for Bard, for Anthropic. You've got to build that structured data. You've got to build the entities. You've got to build the schemas and feed the machine in a way that it likes to be fed. Otherwise, you will see it a much harder path to get the SEO. And you kind of go, oh, that's okay. I don't want to do SEO. I'll do paid search. What we saw with a lot of DTC companies that are, have felt, uh, have, have gotten their butt kicked, to say it nicely, um, including, you know, Pill Club, just shot, uh, which was a birth control startup, just decided to shut, I think, this week or just shut down abruptly. Because what we're seeing is cost of acquisition on paid search has gone way up. And so, you know, how ten, you know, it's pretty untenable if your CACs were based on like 50% of what you're really having to spend because you're not making it up. And, you know, this is like dollar bills at 99 cents, but it's worse because you're actually trying to get to LTV and you don't know your LTV yet. You don't know what the lifetime value is, especially for a new customer as you're just getting out of the gate. So I think there's going to be, you know, and this is sort of a long soliloquy, but the answer is like, it's got to be, a, it's going to be a hybrid of things. It's going to be you figuring out your content strategy, which is no longer the same as it was six months ago. You figuring out paid search, okay, and figuring out the alternatives, which could be influencers. And one of the things that Google sort of alluded to was one of the things that they're going to do is called um, perspectives, which is kind of a random name. But perspectives is going to be, hey, I have a, an opinion on the best allergy medication. And uh, here's my opinion. I've had been an allergy sufferer for 15 years. Here's what works for me. Um, I'm mostly doing X, Y, Z. And by doing short form video and writing content, et cetera, from my perspective, I can appear in that search. And all of that is directly related to your, you know, expertise, uh, your authority and trust, which Google now is actually starting to assign as it relates to your domain authority and your, your own personal authority to speak about this stuff. So it's just gotten multivariate, I mean, there's multivariate things now. It's not just two, there's five or 10 different things. Email used to be a solution. It's probably not. We can, we're starting to see some slippage there. Um, and going into different people's channels uh, possibly is a solution, but maybe not as well. If you're on Amazon or if you're on Walmart, uh, the prices there are going up as well. So it's, it's not just a Google or Facebook or Insta thing. It's across the board. Your cost of acquisition price is going up. And the question is, how do you get attention? How do you get authority? How do you get your customer in front of it? And there's no single one bullet, unfortunately. So that, this reminds me of, you're talking about a certain kind of formula is falling apart. Okay, so there's a great story from 10 years ago or so about Yaz, the birth control pill. And the marketing team behind Yaz was very progressively minded. And they did something at the time that almost no one else had done in pharma, but that was very common elsewhere, which was that they created a website for the drug and they had a discussion group on the website for the drug. This is actually, this is more than 10 years ago. Um, right. And of course this was new for pharma and this was ancient for anyone who was at an agency or whatever. Um, but they had, 
And so they had a, a very engaged audience. Turns out that women who are on birth control want to learn more about it, want to talk about it. Um, it was the conversations were happening all over the place, but Yaz wanted them to happen at one place that, that they owned. Um, and so they set up a website uh, and then they did search engine optimization, um, which was much easier at that time. Uh, and so uh, their audience was trained to search. They would search. This was not mobile yet. This was uh, on a desktop. Uh, and then Yaz would appear you know, high up in the results and then the audience would click and then they would be on a very engaging site and there was a high volume of traffic. That was a win according to the Yaz marketing team. Now we're seeing, and that was a formula for, for many people to follow, um, right. uh, including the most basic thing, having your own website, for example, um, expecting people to visit it and interact on it. Um, and so now what's happening is that people who've been trained to search and to see and then to click on a link for a website. Um, now they may want an answer. They may not want to search. They want an answer engine. And so now they they type a question and they expect to get to a two paragraph answer that will intelligently answer their question on the same web page. That means that if you spend all the money on an SEO budget, that doesn't matter. Um, uh, and yeah. Uh, and then there's no clicking. So if you built a website and you expected to get your traffic to your website through search, there's no clicking because the, you're, this, is a, this is an answer, a full and complete answer from ChatGPT, let's say. Um, and then you're, like, well, then, then you're like, well, then I have to be in the ChatGPT results. I have to be in those two paragraphs. Well, then how are you going to get in those two paragraphs? Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's utterly controlled by by OpenAI, by the company running ChatGPT, it's not, they're not yeah. trolling the web. Uh, they're not, they're not inserting your name in their answer. Um, and so, so that, that whole model seems to kind of fall apart. It's a, it's as big as a challenge as going to mobile when you have to do everything all over again for mobile. And now people are going to answer engines instead of to search engines. Is that, is that an example of what's, of what's uh, changing and making things harder? Yeah, it, it, how about this? The game is certainly different. The good news is we actually appear in Bing, G, within GPT-4, we appear in the knowledge panel within the knowledge because we built a knowledge graph. So what we did was we actually, we've been working with OpenAI and GPT-J and a bunch of open source projects to actually build our own, essentially training our own transformers that would go off and actually be able to do this. So I think that's one part of it is, yes, there are ways to get in there is part two. But part one is, I don't know, like, and when I'm looking to solve my allergy problem, I'm not sure that I care about why allergies exist and the role of antihistamines in any part. I don't care. Just tell me what to buy. Make the pain stop. Okay. I sound hoarse right now. And I, what I'm really, you know, the answer is, I don't think that, I think consumers, and this is the big difference between an academic setting. Okay. I don't, the answer they're looking for may not be the answer the search engine wants. They want a solution to their problem. And one of the things that we've been thinking pretty deeply about is what does that really look like? I mean, as a, as a marketer, I'll just say, I think about it as applied anthropology. And it's like, why do people do what they wanted? Or like, why are people choosing that? It's really, you know, incredibly interesting to me. And what they're choosing to do, I think from a, you know, I'm, when they're searching and we see a tremendous amount, we rank for about, I'll say about 140,000 keywords, which is, um, so much that we can't use spreadsheets. Uh, it's, it's a pretty massive amount. And we look at that, I mean, obviously it changes all the time. 
And we look at that across a million pages. Um, it's a lot of content, it's a lot of keywords, and you're managing all of that. When we look at that, we look at search demand, we look at questions, what's being answered, what's being asked, who's answering them, and how do we get that click? We're doing that at scale. And so when you start to think about that is, why am I trying to get to answer somebody's allergy question? It's because I either have a Claritin ad running, or because I wanna get them into a clinical trial, or I wanna get them to an allergist appointment. I don't know what the answer is. And it actually, I think that's where the opportunity is for a lot of startups is to really solve the user's problem. Because, you know, just the answer engine the GPT chat by itself, I think is a starting point. But um, I don't know, we all play with it. Hallucinations are still a thing. And honestly, I don't know if Americans really wanna take the time to go back and forth and chat with something. They just want the answer. Okay, <laughs> like just tell me what to do already. Um, I think there's a little bit of that. So I, I kind of look at this from a health and wellness versus sick care perspective and perhaps the health and wellness aspect of it is maybe what's driving a preventative health, diet, wellness. And a lot of those things will start to get the per, uh, perceptions or whatever they're called, perspect, per, perspectives kind of content, scientific data, and academic data, MedPOM2 can cover a lot of that stuff. Other LLMs are out there that are going off and getting the, uh, Google's MedPOM2 is out there, but there's others. I don't think, I think that's the starting point for really the conversation that we're about to have. And there's a lot of really exciting things. I'm really not that excited about somebody building a new LLM because that's not the problem. Um, it's actually, how do you get a user? I mean, we have thousands of people showing up every day Okay, and the question is those thousands of people, how do we, how do we help service them? Um, what are they looking for? How do I get them to where they're going in a way that's actually monetizable for me and helpful to them, hopefully both. Um, and, and I kind of, I think that's one of the things about the trust, accuracy, access, um, the quality of the experience. I'm not sure if GPT chat and the chat function is really gonna get us there. I think it's gotta be a lot more than that. So, and for our audience, by the way, if you have questions for Ace or for me on this topic, you know, feel free to type them in the chat room. Uh, so what do you think are, what's some more on new models for winning access to consumers and patients? What are, if, if that old model I talked about is not going to have as much traction, what are the new models uh, for winning access to consumers? So one of the interesting things, let's just say that you were to build that knowledge graph, you created the entities, you have the structured data and you have this material. Well, I could go in, let's use allergies as a great innocuous example. I could go in and actually create a digital experience for consumers. I could create one for, you know, for Spanish speaking consumers, for every language. Every one of those can be created. I can do one specifically for people in Massachusetts. Okay, have the language adjusted for them. So what we're starting to see is actually a really interesting the breadth of what's possible once you actually have that core, you've created all the ingredients and then you're gonna create a bunch of different varieties. But generative AI is gonna make the experience a lot wider and a lot more encompassing to try to fit that, what the user is looking for. Um, it's not gonna be the one size fits all. Um, but I think what we're gonna start to see is digital, it's not gonna be one single website, just like even for Yaz, there was one for the dispensing physician, one for the disease state, one for the consumer and, you know, what well, I think one for uh, access for financial aid and whatever, patient advocacy. 
So they, you know, none of those existed by themselves. They were all there. Um, but your conversation, just like what I say for brands, you don't get to own your brand is what the famous, uh, all the advertising guys say, you know, um, you know, Tesla, Tesla owns their brand in one way, but people talking about Tesla, that's another, right? And what do, what do people feel about your brand is important. So what we're starting to see is actually more showing up with your brand and being able to get, having something to sell, not being an intermediary. Those are all gonna be super valuable. Looking at alternative channels, I think if I was looking at what was out there for healthcare, Pinterest is really interesting, gets a lot more traffic than you expect. If I was selling a Gen Z product who doesn't care about their health as much, I'll just say as a, as a segment compared to obviously the boomers and who's spending money there. Um, Snap is super interesting. We don't know what that looks like yet from a marketing perspective, but we know we have to generate content. So what's going to happen is you're going to generate content using CapCut or what have you on TikTok. You're going to strip out that the little image. You're going to, or you're going to go to influencers to go generate it, and then you're going to federate it out, and it's going to go, and you're going to see what works for your audience, and it's going to be a lot of trial testing, and it may not. The scary thing for a marketer is it may not be something you can duplicate. So it's something that works once and it doesn't work again. That's really scary as a marketer um, for us to try, try to have some sort of steady, you know, uh, forecasting ability. Um, but I'm, I think what we can, I think the other part is in terms of email, in terms of content, programmatic SEO is interesting, um, which is basically the idea of actually generating content at scale. So it's no longer about a 10 page, nice little website. It's about a thousand pages with every possible question they could ask about you, your item, and then remixing that. It's like a remix culture where you're going to remix that for different purposes. So it is, um, and I would say that's that's one part, and that's sort of the Facebook, Insta, Google part of it. On the Apple side, um, and I have no insight. I have friends at Apple, uh, my friends at all the, you know, a bunch of these companies, but I have no no. Amazon and Apple are famously tight-lipped. Uh, and won't, they don't, my friends wouldn't tell me anyway, but you know, they're famously tight lipped, but I don't really know. But I would say what's, you know, what's interesting is the walled garden that's being created right now, that if you are competing to go create a journaling, if you're my fitness pal, if you're any, you know, day one or any of these kind of journaling apps, um, that are there, any of the mental health type companies, it's tied to our, you know, we have our Apple watch. It can tell you over time we'll have some business you know bi to tell us you are unhappy if the allergies are high and it's hot, too hot outside and it's cloudy okay we'll be able to go cool like maybe you should go get starbucks today um you know it's like we'll be able to preemptively do that so i'm i'm a little worried about the apple closed ecosystem a little bit for how to compete with that um google less so i think people have more trust you saw it with apple's banking People gave him a billion dollars overnight, I mean, in just a short amount of time, just to go, great, take my 4%. Overnight, they became a bank. Apple has that kind of fandom. I'm not sure that Google does. I'm positive Facebook does not. Um, and so it's, uh, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see who's able to go get that trust, who has the accuracy, and who's able to work with the ecosystem to start to expose those endpoints so we can start to build really cool stuff. And so just by the way, for the sake of our audience, um, you know, our younger audience may know this, our, our older audience may not, but increasingly, um, you know, the, 
the, the old model of getting people's attention was uh, to get it on the web, whether it was search or people knowing a website to go to or visiting the website of CNN or, or whatever, um, you, you could get win people's attention that way. But increasingly, especially for the young, um, but also for everyone, uh, people are spending, just spending more time on their phones. And then on their phones, um, they are spending, they're not opening up uh, the Safari browser and cruising around on the Safari browser on their phone and visiting URLs on their phone. They are spending their time in apps and those, and they, and then increasingly they're spending their time in a small number of apps. And so that's why we keep hearing about TikTok, which has mastered the ability to have you think you're going to open it up for five minutes and then wind up spending 35 minutes on it, uh, or the app for YouTube or the app for Instagram or the app for Facebook or the app for something else. Um, and it's much harder if you're, if you, you, know, you used to say, I'll make a website for my company and I'm one click away on, on the, the desktop browser and people can go to me or they can go to CNN. Um, but when you move to the phone, it's much harder to get people to actually choose to download your app and then go back to your app every day. And what they do instead is they increasingly go to a small number of very popular apps like TikTok or YouTube or Instagram, um, and then they spend their time there. And so that means that you would abandon your own website, perhaps, uh, and just uh, find out where your audience goes and yeah. just and put content there. But then all of a sudden, uh, those companies have a lot of power over you. They didn't necessarily have power over you when you had your own website. But now if, right. if you're just one content contributor on YouTube or on, or on TikTok, um, you know, you're you, you, you they control their algorithm. They control whether you can monetize that at all. Um, they control a lot. Uh, and so in a sense, they, they can also choose to sort of cut, cut you off if you're a, you know, if, if you're a, so, um, so I think that that's part of the, the struggle we're talking about. Is that, is that right, Ace? Right. Any, anything I'm missing there? Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't build on somebody else's platform because as many people found out when, when the platform changes, look, look at Twitter, they changed the API rule. Uh, the rules for the API access for Twitter. So now suddenly entire business models, companies had to shut. So I think the idea of actually, you have to do both. I mean, the truth is you've got to go where the users are because that's how you're going to get reach. Um, but you've got to own your own content and you have to own your own first party data. So even as related to LLMs, um, you've got to have some original signal there because otherwise you've got nothing to sell. There's nothing different about you. So how do you go in and get that content? How do you go in and have something different? And it could be, I mean, I've seen a tremendous number of cust customers, uh, com not customers, but companies do really well, whether we call it TikTok or call it Instagram on short form video. But Mr. Beast, who's a, obviously a very famous YouTuber, if you told me five years from now, Mr. Beast was selling Ozempic, okay? I would not be surprised, okay? I mean, that's what we're talking about. We're literally saying these people are moving. They are $100 million, brand, $100 million brands. He's a one-man show who happens to have a big team. But he's a one-man show, and he spends, like, he has an entire team just to do thumbnails. I mean, this guy is incredible. And he is going to go into healthcare because 20% of the GDP is there. He's going to go in and figure out how to go do these things. So the influencers, I mean, whatever we're going to call influencers, people, these are brands. They're just not the same brands that we expect. So you mentioned CNN. CNN has fewer people watching in primetime than Newsmax, okay? 
It's crazy how bad it is. Why would you pay any a time, a time to it? Well, the answer is if you know your market and you're talking about this, you go pay for some sort of cheap slotting and you get to be able to put that thing as seen on CNN, which may appeal to your older audience who still thinks it's a real, a real place. Okay. But, you know, CNN is, uh, is no longer, you know, that's not where the action is. That's not where, not, not where the users are. And you're not going to get much engagement there. Um, so anyway, that's my, that's my hot take on CNN. But I will just say the bigger part is you've got to go where the users are. The users are clearly in the apps. And TikTok, for those of you, I will just say I'm not sounding, I'm not doing any dances. I don't actually publish any content. But I do watch, um, I do watch every night with my se uh, seventh grader. We watch together as a family. The content quality is exceptional. The discovery is exceptional. The stuff that it's surfacing, like the books, the, the movies, everything that it is finding, it is nothing like Facebook or Instagram or YouTube. Okay. I wouldn't let my daughter go on Instagram or Facebook. She's on part of no social networks. But TikTok together is actually like, okay, that's cool. What it's surfacing on music and movies and everything. The algo is moving the culture and the marketing follows the culture. So we have to go where the people are. And so I think that's, that might be my, uh, the big takeaway is there is no magic bullet. The LLMs aren't going to be the magic answer. And there's, unfortunately, we've got only limited amount of ammo as marketers, but we've got to spread it across a lot of different channels and you can't do everything. That's great. And another call to our audience uh, for any questions you have. And uh, let me ask a, a kind of a perennial question in consumer healthcare, which is that uh, there's a uh, there's a long time saying that consumers don't want to pay for their own health care. So in America, um, consumers have this magical credit card where they run up as big a bill as they like. And then the uh, you know, the, the payment form is sent to somebody else is their, it's their health plan card. Um, yeah. uh, and then they have the opportunity to buy, buy their own home blood pressure cuff, or they have the opportunity to buy their own weight loss program. And in general, they don't um, buy it. Uh, but right. over the last four or five years, we've seen some intriguing consumer success stories. Probably the most famous is Noom, where Noom has finally cracked the puzzle that Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig couldn't crack, which is how to get people to pay 40 bucks for, you know, a month for weight loss. Um, uh, and, uh, and now Noom's trying to duplicate that in other uh, indications as well. Um, and you also saw Peloton, um, you know, with people buying expensive, you know, home running equipment um, and other. Uh, and so there's a there's a hope that maybe consumers right. are willing to pay for their own health care. Maybe we will see consumers spend more. Um, uh, and so do you think that we're seeing that or do you think we're back to the usual story of American consumers don't want to pay for their own health care? Just like the recovery and the recession, we have a K-shaped economy. It's working for some, not enough. And for the 30% of Americans who are doing well, I think we have a good percentage of worried well who own Pelotons who pay, you know, who own hydros. We have a hydro, which is a rowing machine, um, similar to a Peloton. And I kind of look at that and I'm going, you know, for the worried well, I bought something called the Levels, which is a, basically a Dexcom CGM, continue, continuous glucose. Um, and it basically has a beautiful app, great marketing around it, et cetera. The core tech was somebody else's. It's just a wrapper and they'd raised a bunch of money. 
are there that many people who are so worried about A1C levels that, you know, are, who are not diabetic, but concerned about it, who are willing to pay 300 bucks? I don't know. I think that was a zero interest phenomenon. But I do know that Athletic Greens is a great example. You can't listen to any podcast without hearing an Athletic Greens commercial. And that stuff is a hundred bucks a month for what seems to me like green powder, but what do I know? Uh, I'm sure it's very healthy. But it's um, but that idea of actually like there, pe- there are a lot of people out there paying for their health, you know, willing to pay for better health, better food. Uh, we're st- but on the lower part, the larger part of the market that really matters, um, food for medicine is interesting. What do we do for social determinants of health and how do we like us as marketers go into that? Um, that's something I've talked to a lot of friends about. Like you start thinking about food deserts and you start thinking about whether whether they exist or not or what they what they really mean. But how do we get we know what we should be eating. Why do we want to go to Chick-fil-A over, you know, sweet greens next door? Um, you know, and a lot of choices like that. And the answer is, why shouldn't we participate if we're costing the insurance companies, le- you know, less money, if we're keeping ourselves healthier? I think we're going to start to see some inter- interesting models that um, that we're, we've already started to see over the years related to people taking a, a we'll give you a cheaper, you know, go do this, go to the gym three times a week and we'll pay for 20% of it. We'll pay for all of it. Um, and I think this is, it's gotta be in hand. It's not going to be out of pocket except for that athletic greens kind of stuff, but it's going to be people who are, who want to go work in hand with what they're already paying for. Because, um, I don't know about you, but we pay a lot of money for health insurance and I want to, if anything I can put towards that or put toward, you know, use my HSA for it. I would rather do that than have to actually come out of my own pocket. Um, so I think that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a good question. I think there's a couple areas where they, it might be different online testing, which I'm very interested in, like let's get checked or STD check or any of those kind of companies, which are much larger than you'd expect. Um, very large, everly well, they're doing interesting stuff. Um, maybe for folks that don't have care, uh, don't don't or may have let insurance lapse for whatever reason and want to get a test done. This is a cheaper way than going to an urgent care clinic. So I, I, we're starting to see some interesting examples there. And uh, so we, according to Larry Summers and Fidelity, we may be going into a recession uh, within the next two quarters. Um, what does that mean for for this field, the field of you know reaching of um, healthcare marketers reaching the consumer, the field of online health media, um, the field of uh, of consumers spending you know consumer dollars on healthcare uh, or or reimbursed um, health plan dollars on healthcare. If we go into recession, what do you think it means in general? Are, is there any things that are on the way out that are going to finally be kicked out because of this? Are there any new and up up and coming things that'll get get accelerated because they're more cost effective or cheaper? Um, because of our downturn? Yeah, I think because marketing budgets are already cut, they were cut at the last, you know, when they're doing the planning for 2023, we know 2023 budgets are lower. We're starting to see that even in things like insurance costs per lead, we're starting to see that across the board in insurance and healthcare, et cetera. Um, there's just less money in the system. This makes everything kind of go down. Uh, when I look at that, I'm, you know, that's the part that's un- unfortunate because it's a, even it's a rising tide, the opposite of the rising tide lifts all boats. This is unfortunate because it's really hard to get traction sometimes 
when there's just not enough money to go around if you're if you're looking for that budget from a company they just don't have as much so we've actually you know i would just say from a from a healthcare perspective the online media companies that you mentioned i think a lot of them have a very expensive cost structure and very expensive model i won't name names but i'll just say that um any if you see vice news going under or bankruptcy um this is you know buzzfeed news etc it's because they had a very expensive apparatus that was kind of to produce that content um i think we're going to start to see a new generation of online media creators some of that could be mr beast for health i don't know who those are yet but i think you're going to start to see some of those exist with with who are still moving the traffic um but not doing it with with the maybe not the production quality maybe not the the same levels that you would expect from some of the larger players today um so yeah in general i would say it's kind of uh it's it's not disheartening but it is a difficult time to be in a display selling display as you start to see weakening on the seo side so meaning you have to earn every click you're getting through paid or otherwise and then on the other side is that uh conversions will probably go down there's less com- competition for those spaces on your on your media property so that, that that's really interesting and you know there's i i talk to a lot of um uh, of uh digital health entrepreneurs who fundamentally they have ip um and you know i think click therapeutics went once talked publicly about the following dilemma it was you have click had ip about smoking cessation uh, right. and they were saying you know um where we could take this product and we could make um a, a product with low feature functionality low claims low research and we could sell a consumer version on the apple app store for $10 a month and then we could take the same ip and make another version for the employer payer market and this version right. we could have medium feature functionality medium claims medium research backing it up maybe we would throw in a coach as well um and then we could sell this smoking cessation product for 30 bucks a month to the employer payer market um and then we could take this over to the prescriber market and here we would have the same ip but we'd have the highest level of feature functionality um uh, the highest claims the highest research backing it up um and it would be prescribed by your prescriber and and you know reimbursed by a payer and used by a patient under the care of a physician and and that sort of thing and we could get $200 for a course of treatment um for the same product and the riddle is that it's all the same app it's the same app um sure. it's just which channel do you sell it down in america and it's the same ip as well um and then the the release of feature functionality simply comes from the version of the app or the code you put in the app tells you what which version of the product that you got from it uh, and so a lot of um entrepreneurs they've dabbled their foot in um in the the employer market and they've learned that's that's tougher than it was 5 yeah. years ago and they've dabbled their foot in the prescriber market and they've learned that's that's tough and we're seeing that tough with yeah. all the prescription digital therapeutics companies with pair and otherwise yeah trading below cash value on the stock market and pair going bankrupt um and they're saying hey 
maybe I should think about the consumer pathway. How hard is it to get the attention of consumers for my product? Um, and so what, what advice would you give them uh, as to uh, how, how hard is it to go down the pathway of the consumer channel? Well, so num number one, I think all the other channels are de completely dependent on how good a market access person you have, how good your insurance relationships are, and how long you can last until they say yes. So all of those other things to be able to get the code, to be able to go through and be able to sell your stuff. The good news on the consumer side, assuming that this is, you know, 510 or whatever, whatever, whatever this, you know, the widget is that you're selling. Um, I think one of the problems is it depends on the category. So if you looked at birth control, if you look at smoking cessation, well, is smoking a is smoking cessation still a problem? Okay. Is, you know, it obviously still is people still smoking, but in terms of like markets, how many companies are already there? So every category has, you know, endemics, has folks in there, new entrants, et cetera. Um, and the, non, the number of dollars and how much mindshare those dollars, you know, how much mindshare there is for that problem. You saw that with better help. You saw that with all the mental, I think the mental wellness part is where there is a tremendous amount of opportunity. Um, you know, there's just because we all, we could all use more mental wellness. Um, but I think, you know, for most of these, they have a finite set um, of folks that have this, you know, condition or symptom or what have you. And so I think my, my, the advice is, yes. I mean, the best part of this is you can test it. You can put something up there. You can figure out a landing page, put it on Facebook, get the targeting, right? Smoking cessation. Okay. Like, you know, let's go after people who like, you know, uh, Facebook doesn't allow for smoking, but I'll just say, uh, I'm going to make up something and say heavy metal folks are more likely to smoke. I don't know if that's true, but I, they seem, they seem like they might be. And so maybe you could go in and say there was an affinity there. And I'm going to go in and say people over 45 people over this. And I, I start to go down and I slice it up and I go, okay, how many people is that? Can I go after them? And do they want to quit? Okay. <laughs> do they actually want to quit or have they figured out that this is actually better than any number of other bad habits that they might instead take. So I think the, the idea is it's never, it's never been cheaper for to go test, spin something up, figure out what a CAC, the customer acquisition cost might be, but it's never been harder because you're competing with 10 other people doing the same thing. Um, and you won't know if you actually, if you hit lightning and, you know, if you hit it, it's perfect, but it's very, very hard. And the markets are incredibly efficient frontiers. So it's, everything is priced pretty right. So if it turns out it costs you $249 to land a $250 customer, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it, every, everyone has figured out that your customer is worth 250 bucks. Um, and they're going backwards from that $30 product or 20, whatever the price might be for that product. And they've gone backwards and it just happens to fit that mold, but that's great. You've actually found a channel. Okay. It may not be the biggest one. And maybe you build lookalike audiences against it. Maybe you go off and you start to sponsor heavy metal concerts. So who knows? And I think thinking out of the box a little bit about where you can go with that, you're not going to go put it on time magazine or CNN. Uh, those days are over. Um, I, I apologize, but I unfortunately have to hop off to a pick up a child. Wait, you know, and um, but I appreciate uh, 
all the great conversation. And Steve saying thanks for having me. This was really a lot of fun. Yeah, th thank you so much. Uh, don't let us hold you up. I'm actually just, just going to do the, the outro um, to the podcast. Uh, but uh, thank you so much, Ace, for joining us. That was great to hear about what's going on in the consumer market. Awesome. So great to have you guys. And I'm actually, I'll just, my outro is actually for me, and I'll just jump in before jumping off. It's saying I'm at D-U-R-J-O-Y on Twitter. I'm easily found. I'm pretty uh, social media friendly. Um, and I don't mean to shit post on Twitter. I should be more useful, but um, hit me up there and I look forward to talking to everyone. Thanks so much for everyone. Sure thing. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So uh, you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with your host, Stephen Wardell, and thanks to our guest, Ace Bettercharja. You'll find a list of upcoming Investor Talk shows at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, where my handle is twitter.com slash stephenwardell. Um, and uh, see you next time on May 24th at 4 p.m. for our show, Will AI Replace Your Doctor? with Dr. Harvey Castro. Harvey is a physician, entrepreneur, and author of ChatGPT Healthcare. And for our Boston audience, our next monthly Digital Health Investor Talk Drinks Night is tomorrow, Thursday, May 18th, between 5.30 and 8.30 p.m. in the lobby bar in the Liberty Hotel. And the theme of the evening is The Empowered Patient Will See You Now with Dr. Danny Sands. If you'd like to join us, you need to get a ticket. And so you can get that ticket for the Thursday, May 18th event at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Thanks, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.